Romans 8, 28. We're continuing our survey, our, our, our study, rather our series on context. And uh, as, as God would have it, uh, we are here in Romans 8, 28 uh, today. And, and it has been a, a very tough week uh, for me, and I know many of you as well. And Friday I went to... Uh, I went to a funeral at 11 for a, a friend of many of ours, Tom um, Lachlan, 41 years old, father of six, and he drowned. And uh, we went to that funeral, and then at 1 o'clock on Friday, I preached a funeral. And uh, Monday morning, um, we host a, a homeschool group, uh, uh, Classical Conversations, and um, the Lachlans were a part of that, and so... Uh, they asked me if I would come and speak to the group. And, and, you know, you can go through all the seminary you want, all the theology you want, but you stand in front of a bunch of kids and a bunch of moms and dads who have lost their friend and have a lot of questions. And, and, uh, but as God would have it, I was studying and preparing. And, and uh, you know, we live in a fallen world. And as Christians, we are not immune to suffering. Uh, you know, we have miscarriages. Our loved ones get cancer. Our football teams get blown out on Saturdays. You know, I mean, it could have been worse. We could have lost in Nebraska, I guess. I mean, when, I mean, could have lost in Nebraska. But, um, I mean, we, the teams lose. You know, I mean, I don't... You know, the reality is, is that we aren't where we will ultimately be. You know, God, the, the reality is, is we are, we are Christians who still live in a fallen world. We're not immune to the effects of sin. We're not immune to, to others' sin. We sin. And, and the reality is, is, is that's really where this, this context and the context of Romans 8.28 Comes, comes in and shines most brightly. It is in a context, it is in a world where believers suffer from sin. We suffer from our sin. We suffer from other people's sin. If that were not the case, Romans 8.28 would be totally neutered of all of its power, all, all of its promise, if it were not the fact that Christians suffer. And, and, and that's what I want us to see that This verse... This is a verse that has sweeping, wide application. And yet, we still have to be careful not to take it out of its bounds. I, I want to I show us the reality of suffering in a Christian's life. The reality that Christians suffer have caused many people to, to wonder, to question. We'll, we'll mention it later on. Uh, there's, a, there's a false theology out there uh, by, by professing evangelicals that it's called open theology. And it's this, that God doesn't, he doesn't know what's happening in the future. He just responds. He, he doesn't know. He's not, he's not sovereign. He's not in control. That suffering is out of his control. That, that's not a God I want to serve. The, the Bible does not present a God who simply reacts. The Bible presents a God that's sovereign. Does that create questions for me? It certainly creates questions for me. But, but God is not up there reacting. He's sovereign. And not only that, we, we, one of the other ways, and we'll show today, is we have to be careful as, as Christians. This verse 
is written to a specific people. Okay? God does not cause all things to work out for good for everybody simply because He's God. This verse is written, you look at verse 28, we, we, we love to stop at, in, we say, we know God causes all things to work together for good. That's where most of us stop. The problem is, look at this, the specific people that God does that for. To those who love God and to those who are called according to His purpose. So as we'll see in a minute, believer, for you to share this verse with a non-believer and try to encourage a non-believer with this is, is deceptive and harmful at best. Because as we'll see, the future that is waiting for a non-believer is wrath, Romans 2.5. Romans 2, and so we've we got to be real careful about how we treat this verse. We've also got to be real careful. I'm just telling you on the front end what I'm going to tell you. We've got to be real careful because we don't get to define or determine the good. A sovereign God who is good gets to determine the good. And we as his children have to submit to the good. Yeah, I don't even, I, I, you know, I don't even, my, think about it, it it's, it's really illustrated with kids. I, Karen and I, I fool myself and throw myself in that category, really Karen's in charge in our house. You know, our kids, they don't choose. They don't choose what's for dinner. They don't choose where we go. They don't choose if they get to get up in the morning. They got to trust their parents that they're good. Most of the time, that they love them most of the time. Listen, we, we don't get determined the good. And so those are some of the things that I want to show today and how this verse is taken out of context. And I, I want to teach us. And, and I want us to be a people that is real careful with the word and how we treat the word. Because th this is one of those verses that I hear it all the time. I hear it all the time and, and specifically at, at the wrong times. And so I want to help us with that today. This is a powerful verse, an awesome verse. But just like the rest of them, just like Matthew 7, 1, just like Matthew 18, 20, just like Jeremiah 29, 11, just like 2 Chronicles 7, 14, just like Philippians 4, 13, all the verses that we've looked at, if we're not careful, we can mistreat them and we can abuse them. And we can, try, we can make them say something that they don't say. And so as has as been the case with all of them, I'm going to start out with a very wide, wide lens, the context of Romans. That right there, if you know the book of Romans, you know that right there. I'm just, this is going to be a long sermon. Just I'm telling you on the front end. We're dealing with Romans, my favorite book in all the Bible. It's going, we're going to be here a while. But listen to me, I'm going to start with a wide view of Romans. Then I want to narrow the view a little bit to Romans 8. And then I want to go real specifically to Romans 8.28. That's how we've tried to treat the other verses. That's what I'm going to try to treat today. And you see on your handout, the context of Romans is a clear explanation of the gospel and how God rightly declares sinners to be righteous. If you know the book of Romans, chapters 1 through 11 is theology. Paul is presenting the gospel. Chapter 1, verse 1, all the way to 319 is God's explanation that Jew and Gentile alike are sinners, that they're, that they're none righteous. Romans 3, 10 through 19, there's none righteous. That every single person deserves God's wrath left to themselves. They're sinners in need of God's wrath. Starting in 3.20, Paul says, but now a righteousness has been presented apart from the law. 
You'll see that on your handout, apart from the law. R- Romans 1, 16 and 17, key verse. If you want to know a key verse for, the, for the, the book of Romans, Romans 1, 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for in it the righteousness, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous man shall live by faith. There is a righteousness that God has offered apart from works. It is by faith. You look all throughout the Gospels, all throughout the New Testament, the issue of salvation is righteousness. Matthew 5.20, he says to the Pharisees, unless, unless, he says to the Pharisees, but also to the people, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Who were the Pharisees? Well, outwardly, they were the righteous of the righteous. They were the religious. And God says, unless your righteousness exceeds theirs, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. It's way more than just being good. And what Paul does in Romans 3.20, up to 3.20, he has said, everyone is guilty. He says in 19, so that all the world may become accountable to God, because, verse 20, by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Verse 21, but now... Apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, that means revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. You see what he's saying? Jew, Gentile alike, it's Christ. There's one way to get to God, it's Christ. And in Romans 3, verse 20, all the way to to the end of chapter 8, he's explaining that. Chapters 9, 10, and 11, he is showing how the, the Jew would have said, well, are we at a disadvantage? Are we at any advantage? Or what's going on? Romans 9 through 11, he's speaking about Israel, and he makes it very clear. Even so much in 9, 6, I believe it is, he says, not all Israel is Israel. Simply by being a Jew, you're not guaranteed to get into heaven. Nobody's going to show up in front of God and say, look, I, I'm a Jew. I get in. N- wrong. It's through faith in Christ. In verse 9, 6, it is not as though the word of God has failed. For they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel, nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. But through Isaac your descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but children of the promise are regarded as descendants. It's the gospel. Starting in Romans 12, Paul gives the response. Romans 12 through 16, a response to the gospel. Therefore, in view of God's mercy, I implore you, I urge you to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, for this is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed any world, and do not be conformed any longer to the ways that will be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Paul talks about it starting in Romans 12, the response. Everything is centered in the gospel. Everything about why I do what I do, Paul says, it is a response to what God has already done. We're not earning our way. We're not meriting our way. We're responding to the fact that He has made a way. And by grace, through faith in Jesus Christ, through repentance, through acknowledgement that you're a sinner, that all of that, you can be saved. Confession of the Lord. Believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead. It's the gospel that God has made a way for sinners to be forgiven rightly. I mean, a just God that you don't understand. 
God had to be very specific in how He, a righteous, holy, perfect God, would allow unrighteous people into heaven without compromising His righteousness as a holy judge. And He did it perfectly through the gospel. That's what Paul is explaining. And it wasn't as though the word of God failed. That's 9 through 11. He's explaining that to Israel. What Paul is explaining is that, the, that, that there's a gospel apart from the law, Romans 7, 6. But now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of spirit and not in oldness of letter. That's Romans 12 through 16. We, don't, we serve through the spirit, in the newness of spirit, not in the oldness of letter. He's comparing the old and the new. This is huge. Apart from obedience to the law, salvation has come to all peoples, been made available to all peoples, Jew and Gentile alike, but it's through faith and it's through Christ alone. Through faith in Christ alone, a believer can have permanent acceptance before God through faith in Christ. That's what he's explaining in Romans. And chapter 8 fits perfectly in that context, in that point. You'll see on your handout... Number two, the context of Romans 8 is our security in Christ alone and the truth that nothing can separate us from Christ as we wait for our final inheritance. And that's key. Romans 8 begins this way, Therefore, because of all that God has done, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Paul is explaining the gospel through teaching about the security that a believer has in Christ. Paul is showing that our security depends on the Son's life, it depends on the Spirit's power, and both of those rest in the Father's love. It has nothing to do with you and I. It has everything to do with God. This chapter, if, you were, if we were to study verse by verse, one day in my tenure here, We'll, we'll be, I'll be brave enough, we'll go through Romans, it'll take too long for most of y'all, that's probably why we wouldn't do it, but this chapter has the greatest concentration of references to the Holy Spirit in all of the New Testament. And there are 17 times in, this, in these 39 verses Paul speaks about the Holy Spirit. Almost one in every two verses he speaks about the power of the Holy Spirit. Listen, that's where our confidence is and our, and our power is. Paul is explaining the benefits of sanctification that are made available to the believer through the presence and the power of the Spirit that indwells every believer. Ephesians 1.13, you have been sealed by the Spirit. Sealed. There's, there's confidence there, there's security there. To the point where Paul says, no condemnation, there is therefore now no condemnation. When you read that, listen to me. The second before you placed your faith and trust in Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins, listen to what, was, what God was giving you was condemnation. What you deserve for your sins from God was condemnation. And now, through Christ, there is therefore now no condemnation. That's the glory of the gospel. You went from condemned to forgiven just like that through faith in Christ. All a gift. This means that God will never condemn us to an eternity separated from Himself because of our sins. Why? And even there, it's not about our belief. It's because you are in Christ Jesus. And God has already placed the, His condemnation for our sins on Christ at the cross. We're in Christ. 
The Savior, Jesus Christ, suffered the consequences for our sin as our substitute. He has already suffered the wrath. That's the beauty of believing in Christ. We are eternally secure. That's what Paul is saying here. Chapter 8, you see it on your handout, contains Paul's description of God's provisions for righteousness in the life of a believer. Life will be tough. We as believers are saved, born again, and yet we live in a fallen world. And yet, what Paul is saying is God in His grace and mercy and goodness and all that He is has given us the Spirit to see us through. There will be struggles. Again, verse 12 of chapter 8. Of chapter eight so then, brethren, we are, not, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live to the flesh. For if you're living according to the flesh, you must die. For all being led by the Spirit of God are those the sons of God. You go back over to, to, to chapter 5, and he talks about there's a battle between the flesh and the Spirit. And in the midst of this battle, in the midst of the suffering, in the midst of the heartache that we as believers still suffer... What Paul is writing is because so that you don't lose sight of God's goodness. You don't lose sight of God's sovereignty. You don't lose sight of the fact that we win and that nothing, nothing, nothing will separate a believer from his Lord. Nothing. That's the comfort. And as you read chapter 8, Paul is giving encouragement and hope with the truth of future grace. It is future grace and it's guaranteed through Christ. That's where Romans 8.18 comes in. For I do not consider the present sufferings are worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be future revealed in us. You go to Romans 8.26 and 7. In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness. For we don't even know how to pray as we should. But the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And He who searches the hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because He intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Thursday morning, we got word that our neighbor across the street, Joe, had had a massive heart attack and was in the hospital. And the wife, um, the, the da- their daughter was actually the nurse on call when my father-in-law had his heart attack. And so we, Karen saw, had seen her over there a while back and it enabled us to build a relationship. So I went and visited with Joe Thursday afternoon, evening, and his wife. He was in, a, he was in a, a, an induced a coma. His wife, Diana, I met with her. Listen, I don't know. I, didn't, I sat there at his bedside and I prayed as fervently as I could. I didn't know all the details. I didn't have any idea what God was going to do, what His will was. I didn't know even the extent of His condition. And yet, I know this. Romans 8, 26 and 27 gives me great comfort because the Spirit intercedes on behalf of my weaknesses. Even when I don't know what to pray, God takes the Spirit takes my jumbled up, messed up prayers and lays them at the foot of our holy God and says, you know what, this is what Chris really means. That's what that means. If he knew better, if he knew the situation, if he knew exactly what your will is, this is what he would be asking for. You know what? God answers that according to his will. That was John 14, 13 that we looked at last week. All of this is is comfort and encouragement to the believer in the midst of a suffering world. And, And all of this raises the question, again, the question that was presented Monday morning as I'm standing in front of a group smaller than this, but with, with kids and adults, and they're asking, why, why did Tom die? Why did God allow this to happen? 
If, if, we have, if we've been saved, if the Spirit is praying for saints according to the will, and if, and if we will not be condemned, why do we suffer? And if we're honest, that's the question many of us are asking ourselves. Why are we persecuted even sometimes to death? And how is that according to the will of God? And it's in response to those questions that Paul, regarding suffering, that Paul reaffirms here in Romans 8, 28, that God works all things together for good for those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. The same time that we do not... You see the contrast in verse 26. I don't even know how to pray. I do not know how to pray as I should sometimes. And yet, here's what I do know. Verse 28, that God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. So in the very place where I don't know what to do, my confidence is not in me. My confidence is in a sovereign God who does know what to do and is already determined. In, in our weakness, we don't even know what to pray for, but even in those times, we can trust a sovereign God who is working all things together for good, for our ultimate good. Paul himself, no stranger to suffering. Go read 2 Corinthians 11. Much suffering. And what Paul is saying is this, that, that none of those persecutions can, can mean that Christ is not for you. That's Romans 31 and following. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? The answer is zero. Zero. And what Paul is saying is, in the immediate context of Romans 8.28 is one in which Paul addresses living by the power of the Spirit in the midst of pain and suffering. This is all about, listen, it's all about future grace. It's all about walking the road with your eyes fixed on, there will be a coming time, a point in our lives where the present sufferings will not be worthy to be compared to the glory that is revealed in us. Future grace. We are not yet fully what we will be fully one day. And yet our inheritance is guaranteed. We, we have the guarantee, believers, we have the guarantee of getting to the end that God has set in place. That's the context of Romans 8.28. This is about God and it's about the gospel and it's about His kingdom and it's about future grace. Keep that in mind. As we, as we look at this, keep that in mind. All to the glory of God. The guarantee of our victory is in, the, is in the glory of God and His character and His grace, not our own. That's why we're guaranteed victory. We have been declared righteous through faith. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The worst of the worst that Satan can throw at you will not separate you from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. That's the guarantee here. And Paul's point in Romans 28 is this. God has an end in mind in which he is guiding everything. And that is what Paul explains here. There is a promise of future grace which nothing can separate us from. That's the context. And so this verse specifically, that's where this verse specifically sits. It is here for a purpose and it's right where it needs to be. And you'll see number three on your handout. The point is this. God is using every... Here's what Romans 8.28 tells us, promises us, reassures us. 
guarantees us God is using everything that happens in a believer's life to shape you into the image of Christ. He is shaping you into the image of His Son. And I want to draw out some truths from this passage, again, that this world and Christians and non-Christians alike, that they have taken this verse and abused. I, I want to I show us in, the, in contrast to that how this verse gives us great comfort, what it actually means in its context. And, and the first thing, A, there is this. God is in total control of all events. Total control of all of That's what it means to be sovereign. Now listen, that doesn't mean that he authors all the events. He does not author sin. But he is in control. Our t- and Paul, Paul informs us Again, of that in this text, that God is ultimately and totally in charge of all things. His authority is without limits. All of creation is under the control of of, uh, the creator and sustainer of the universe. If you flipped over to Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, listen to what he says. For he, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. There's no limit to God's power. There's absolutely zero, zero, zero things that are beyond His ability to deal with or control. And and this, again, that is the definition. We refer to this unlimited control as the sovereignty of God, the sovereignty of God. You look at Luke 139, nothing is impossible with God. You look at Jeremiah 32, 16 and 17, all Lord God, you have made the heavens and the earth by that outstretched hand. Nothing is too difficult for you. God is sovereign. He can control, he can predict, he can see future, past, everything with complete accuracy. And this truth is foundational to the truth of Romans 8, 28. Listen, if God does not have a purpose to which He is guiding all things toward, if He doesn't have a purpose, then then you can't say He's guiding all things because it's just haphazard. God has a purpose. Without that purpose, He can't pull it off. Your trials, without that purpose, your trials might be sabotaging what He intended. But that's not the case, Paul says. And this is where people get really sidetracked. The, the reality of suffering in a believer's life have, have caused many believers many, much trouble and to the point where they feel like they need to get God off the hook. They need to get Him off the hook for suffering. And that's where, as I said, this open theism comes, in, comes into play, that, that God is not sovereign over the terrible things that happen in this world, that He's not sovereign. That's a lie. The the theology exists because they cannot in their own minds explain why believers suffer if God is sovereign. And they're trying to get God off the hook. But in doing so, they rob Romans 8, 28 of its power. And again, God is not the author of everything, but He is sovereign. He does not author sin. You and I author sin. Satan comes to steal, to kill, and destroy, and, and again... You look at to James, you see how, how sin takes place. But listen, Scripture is very clear that God is sovereign. L- listen to just, you can look at Job 42.2 if you want to write it down. Isaiah 14.24. 
Let me go, let me go there since I, I turned there. I'm closest to there. Isaiah 14, verse 24. The Lord of hosts has sworn, saying, Surely, just as I have intended, so it has happened, and just as I have planned, so it will stand. That's pretty clear. Pretty clear. Look at Isaiah 46, 10 and 11. Declaring the end from the beginning, from, which, from the ancient times, things which have not been, saying, My purpose will be established, and I will accomplish my good pleasure. Very clear. In Psalm 33, verse 10 and 11, the psalmist writes, The Lord nullifies the counsel of the nations. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of His heart from generation to generation. God is sovereign. Listen, He doesn't need you and I to water down that truth to try to think him, to get Him on our level so we can understand Him. Paul says in Romans 11, the 33 through 36, how indescribable, how unsearchable your ways, even He. If you went over to 2 Peter, you'd see Peter write that many, he says many of the things that Paul wrote were hard to understand. Paul, Peter said that. Look, nothing, listen, nothing frustrates God's plan and His sovereignty. Rather than people, listen, rather than sinful people frustrating God's purpose, what we just saw is God frustrates their purpose. You look at Genesis 50, 20, we've seen it many times before. There's, but with, with Joseph, his brothers sell him into slavery, want to get rid of him, want to kill him, want to get rid of him. That's their plan. Guess what God's plan is? That Joseph would be standing at the perfect place at the perfect time to dole out substance for his family to be alive. You know what, Jan, you know what Jan, uh, John, whatever his name is, Joseph said to them, he said, you meant it for evil, God meant it for good. What did God mean? Selling into slavery? Being, 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 being falsely accused by Potiphar's wife? Being thrown into jail? Being mistreated? All that stuff. You know what God was doing? Man, sinful man, sinful man had their plans. You know what God was doing? God was walking Joseph straight to the right time, at the right place, so he could do exactly what God wanted, and that was preserve his people. I don't Listen, I'll be the first to tell you, I don't totally understand that. But I do know this, that God is sovereign and Joseph was right where God wanted him to be at the right time. None, none of their works, none of that frustrated God's sovereignty. And while God is not the cause of everything, He is sovereign over everything. Listen, even the cross, from man's perspective, you know what man? Man crucified Jesus because they wanted to get rid of Him. That's man's plan. You know what God was doing? Crucifying His Son so that whosoever should call upon the name of the Lord should be, could be saved. You go, to, you go to Acts 2, 23, 22, right around there. He says, this man, this man you crucified, you nailed to a cross. Guess what? But then he goes on to say, according to the predetermined plan of God. You have man's, man's responsibility, God's sovereignty right there. Right there in the same verse. You nailed him to a cross, but guess what? It was according to the predetermined plan of God. God was sovereign. Even over the death of His own Son. And Paul is making, Paul is making a statement concerning God's sovereignty. And, and, and it is meant to encourage the Christian that your sin and your suffering and all the sin of this world isn't frustrating God's plan. He is working all things out together for your ultimate good. 
And listen, what, what this tells us is this, and you see it on your handout. All things don't just happen to work out for good on their own, but rather God providentially works them together for the good. We don't believe in coincidence. We don't believe in good karma. We don't believe in good fortune. We don't believe in love. We believe in a sovereign God and the fact of God's sovereignty and the call of God according to, to, to His purpose is the truth and the encouragement of this passage. We have a God who is unshakable, who is unstoppable, who no matter the best thing that Satan could throw at you, guess what? God is greater. The things that Satan means to tear you away and destroy, you know what God does? He uses them for your good. That's Romans 8, 30, 38. For I'm convinced that neither, or, or 37. But in all these things, what are these things? Suffering. We overwhelmingly, in all these sufferings, look what it says, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. Amen. The, the reality is this, the very thing, Romans 8.37 is powerful, the very thing that Satan means to destroy us, you know what God does with it? He grows us. The very thing that, God, that Satan wants to use to, to, to draw us away from God, you know what God does? He draws us closer into His bosom and He conforms us into the image of His Son. How frustrating would that be for Satan? The very thing that is meant to destroy us, God actually does good in us. Listen, you're, you and I are not the key players. God is the key player. His work will keep this promise true for you, or it won't be true for you. And here's why I say that. Because your love and my love is way too fickle and fragile and uncertain. God is the one who doesn't change or vary or shift or, or like a shadow. God's call for us, His love for us, is not fickle and fragile and uncertain. It's certain. Daniel quoted it, James 1. God does not change. He's immutable. And, and this is amazingly good news and comforting for us today. It means this. No sinful person can thwart God's purpose or plan for your life. Listen, the sinful mate that left you for another woman or another man did not ruin God's plan for your life. The, the drunk driver who, who kills a, a Christian's child doesn't frustrate God's purpose for, for your life. The evil person who lied about you, who stole your promotion, didn't frustrate God's plans or purpose for your life. The misdiagnosis, whatever it is, God is sovereign. There, there is tremendous comfort in this passage, and I don't say that lightly. I, I say that to encourage and challenge you to trust in the, the sovereignty of our God who loves you. But, but not only is God is sovereign, this verse teaches us that God is always good. He is always good. That's what I challenge the kids with on Monday. My kids... My kids, Sarah Grace and Bradley, they don't always understand what their mom and their dad are doing and what their mom are... I mean, simply put, they don't understand why every night I won't make them a milkshake. That's how simple they are. Like, I'm the worst dad in the world. Sarah Grace, you know, will just go off on me if I will not make her a milkshake seven out of seven nights. She don't understand that. How could a, if you're good and you love me, why won't you make me a milkshake every night? They don't understand. 
Here, here's, what, here's what we ask of them. Even though they don't understand, listen to what we ask of them. Trust our character. Trust that we love you. And I don't always understand what God is up to. I don't understand why God does what he does. But here's what I do know. I know I can trust his character. And I know I can trust his love. And, and, and he sees things from a perspective that is way different than my perspective. And, and I've got to trust him that ultimately it's for our good. And God's goodness, you see it on your handout, God's goodness is where everything starts and must be interpreted from. When things happen that we don't understand, when bad things happen that you don't understand, this is the truth you go back to, that we are loved and we serve as believers a good God. Our circumstances, though not good, they do not mean that God is not good. We've got to trust that everything is flowing out of the character of a God that is good. We do not allow our circumstances to teach us about God. We allow God to teach us about our circumstances, His goodness. We don't sift the character of God through our circumstances and try to figure out what is God is like. No, we go to the Bible, we learn what God is like, and we sift our circumstances through that character. And when we say that He's good, listen, you see it there. What, what we're saying is that in His character... He is morally excellent. There's no sin in him. There's no impure motives in him. There's nothing impure. There's nothing that's not good at all. He is perfect. He is without flaw in every shape and form. His love is true. His love is pure. And he's always good. And again, when my circumstances are what I would classify as bad, that does not mean that God is bad. Satan is trying to steal, to kill, and destroy. He's trying to, to drive me away from intimacy with God. And God, is, God at, the, at the same time, is drawing me in. I, I'm sure you as parents, I thought about this, again, numerous times where, where I've just had to say to Sarah Grace, or Karen has had to say to Sarah Grace or Bradley, look, you're just going to have to trust me. You have to trust me. And, and this is what we're saying. We're going to have to trust the character of God no matter what. And this is easy when things are going great, but it's really hard where some of you are living right now. And, and even this sermon, I, I, know, I, I know where a lot of you are living. Trust the character of God. Trust the character of God. He is good. Not only is good, is He good and is He sovereign, but see, God gets to determine what the good is. God gets to determine the good. And, and this truth, this is the truth, really, where this passage gets sideways really, really quickly. Why, where this verse gets abused really quickly. When, when the doctor calls and the cancer is returned, when something happens to a loved one, when people hurt you, when you lose your job, when your spouse, you wonder what... And in these times... In these times, if we don't understand this promise, it can seem unkept that somehow God has failed. But, but those conclusions are lies from an enemy. And, and, and what we are tempted, you and I, as, as, as with the flesh, we are tempted to define good and limit good on our terms and according to our culture. And here's what it looks like. Success. It looks like health. It looks like security. It looks like financial prosperity. It looks like, it looks like personal happiness. It looks like everything is going the way that we planned it. 
And if that's how good is determined here, then Paul is wrong. But that's not how good is promised here. The reality is, is the bad things happen to every single one of us in here as believers that crush worldly definitions of good. And we think only, we think only of the horizontal, the here and now. And God does not limit himself to the horizontal. And, and, and I'll say this very, very carefully, a real-life example of how I've heard this, uh, uh, the abuse of this verse. They're, they mean well. Hear me. I, I believe when people say this, they mean well. It's just a very limited understanding of good. And I specifically hear this verse quoted a lot when, when a marriage ends for whatever reason. And worldly wisdom says this. And I've heard people go up to somebody and say this. Don't you worry, because God's got a better spouse waiting for you. That's what they say. And they'll quote Romans 8.28. I mean, first of all, just again, as lovingly as I can, that is wrong on so many levels. So many levels. Never mind the fact that that remarriage that you're promising according to Romans 8.28 may be adultery, depending on the consequences and how you interpret Mark 10, 12, Luke 16, 18, Romans 7, 1 Corinthians 7, Matthew 5, Matthew 19. Depending on how you interpret all those passages, you might be saying, you know what, God's orchestrating adultery. That, that is wrong on so many levels. But here's why I cautiously say this. What if God doesn't promise a spouse? What if God doesn't offer another spouse? But instead, what if God draws that person into himself and he becomes a spouse to them and he becomes their all in all and he becomes more than enough to them and he takes their relationship with each other to a whole new level and, he, and, and he's now the person that they pursue more than anyone else and the things of this world fade in comparison to relationship with God. Would that not be good? Would that not be the better good? I mean, I, I, mean I, I did a funeral of a lady, 86-year-old lady, on Friday at, at 1 o'clock, never married, never had kids of their own. From a worldly perspective, you know what the world would say? Oh, that's too bad. That's too bad. But when you get to know Miss Doris's life, you know what she did? She wasn't bitter. She did exactly what 1 Corinthians 7 says. She used her singleness for the glory of the gospel, and she treated everybody else's kids as her own kids. And she served everybody else's kids and led innumerable amounts of kids to the Lord. Innumerable. Discipled innumerable amounts of kids. Her, her friends said they never remember her being alone. She poured her life into somebody else. Is God not good? From a worldly perspective, you say, oh, that's too bad. That guy, uh, you know what? No, no, no. That, that's our definition. And, and, and again, Ro Paul tells us in Romans 8, 29, the good... For those whom he foreknew, he predestined what? To become conformed to the image of his son. That, that's the good. We have to trust God to determine the good. And the good has to be determined through the lens of the gospel and God's character and kingdom advancement, not our personal advancement. This is not good with regard to our worldly pleasures. 
And again, I, I don't know what it's like to lose a spouse, so I hope you hear my heart here. Some, some of you do, I do not. I don't know what it's like to use a child. Some of you do, some of you don't. I don't know what it's like to go through a lot of stuff. I don't know what it's like to have cancer. Many of you in here, unfortunately, do. But what I do know is this, that God gets to determine the good because He alone is totally good. And it's godly wisdom over what it's approaching our lives. And this is what I have to tell myself. It is godly wisdom over worldly wisdom. Is that easy? No. Is it biblical? Yes. Will it always feel good? No. Will it ultimately bring about my good? Yes. Is it good for this world and my pleasure this world? No. Is it good for God's kingdom? Yes. And again, the good is this, being conformed to the image of his son, more Christ-like. That's the good. God is shaping all of this stuff that his children become more and more and more what they have been declared to be. God is good. He is conforming us to the image of his son. He has declared righteousness over you and everything he's working it through sanctification. He's moving you toward that which he has declared you. And our definition of good must be God's definition of good because He's sovereign, He calls the shots, and His character can be trusted. He might, look, I don't, I, He might do things that you and I don't know. I'm just saying, we've got to be real careful, hear me, when we're, when we're throwing these things out. Because ultimately what God is doing is not, not creating a good where He just gives us more pleasures. God is using our circumstances to grow us spiritually, spiritually that we would be immovable, that we would be usable. And again, the cross is the ultimate example of this. The cross. Satan thought for three days, for three days Satan thought he had won, and guess what? Up from the ground he arose. It looked real, it looked real good for Satan for about three days. Then all of a sudden Christ came out of that tomb, and God displayed to the world that this is the Savior. Proving to the world, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. This is the only source of salvation. God took what from the eyes of the world, from the eyes of the disciples, were the worst thing in the world, Christ dying. And guess what? He used it for the greatest thing in the world. Salvation is available for all who would repent of their sinfulness, call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. No matter what happens, God is at work behind the scenes to form us into the image of His Son. Second, Second Corinthians, if you look at 2 Corinthians 4, I won't read it all, but starting verse, 30, verse 16, listen. Therefore we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. What that says is, look, there is not a single thing in a believer's life that you can say it was useless or that it was wasted. God is using it, even the most miserable, to conform us in the image of His Son. To the, to the fullness of our salvation. We're becoming more and more and more like that which we've been declared to be. La lastly, the last thing I want us to see real quickly. Not only is God good, is sovereign, and He gets to determine the good. 
God is promising that all things work together for good for Christians. Christians. And again, the context reminds us he is talking to believers here. Believers. These are people by whom, by whom, by grace, through faith, are trusting in Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of their sins. These are people, as he says there, who are called according, who not only love God, but are called according to his purpose. Not every single person can claim this promise. Listen, and we as believers need to be very careful who we try to encourage this passage with. Again, to be sure, God can use circumstances in a non-believer's life, but ultimately that's going to be for their salvation. That's the good. And what he's saying here, Paul says, if you do not love God, and if you're not a called according to His purpose, you can't claim this promise. The person who does not love God, the person who is not a called according to His purpose, listen, to be optimistic about your end would be foolish. Foolish. And for us as believers to give them optimism about their end would be dangerous and foolish. Listen to Romans 2.5. Here's why I say this. I'm talking about non-believers. That's non-believers. But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. To say otherwise, as a believer, would be foolish. It'd be unloving. I mean, the, the experience that a person walks through as an unbeliever every day, they don't turn out for their good unless they repent of their sins and turn to Christ. God can, again, He can restore the years the locusts ate away if they would repent. Until they repent, God is not on their side. They're enemies of the cross. And, and, and again, God's wrath towards, our, towards a sinner can be averted through believing in Christ, repenting of your sin. Not, not living as you are and thinking, oh, God's going to work it all out together for good. No, 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 you're going to get wrath. Christians alone have the promise of an inheritance for God. And we alone are bound for glory. Paul makes that very clear. But it will come through tribulation. That's also what Paul makes very clear. Listen to what he says in verse 23. And not only this, but we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. We're not yet fully what we will fully be one day. We are not yet fully. That's Romans 19 through 25. He makes that very clear. Romans 13, 11 says this, Today salvation is nearer than the day before. The glory is coming. And what Paul says is this, you and I, believer, in spite of everything we walk through, can be confident that our salvation is secure in Christ and that God is everything, using everything to conform us to the image of His Son. All things. All things. We will have enemies, we will have adversaries, and God is using all things, big and small, and someone says this, does it include even our sins? Hear me carefully. Yes, in the sense that our sins cannot thwart God's ultimate purpose of being glorified in our salvation. But, if you take this verse to mean that you can be casual with sin and careless with sin and live however you want to live and think God's just going to swirl it all together and make it work out, you're wrong. 
That's a misuse and abuse of this. This does not mean be casual with how we live and God's just going to somehow rearrange it into something beautiful. That's not what Paul is saying. There are consequences for our sin. You read Lamentations, you read, you read all throughout the Bible, consequences, strong consequences for sin. We need to be clear. Look, when bad things happen that are not good in and of themselves, I'm not saying we pretend and call them good. Sin is not good. Cancer is not good. They're difficult. If someone sins against us and hurts us, again, in Genesis 50, 20, Joseph said, you meant it for evil. It's evil. It's not good. Losing a loved one, not good. What, what is good is what God does in those and what God does through those. And what he is saying, believer, is this. Nothing can separate us from God or his purposes for us. Nothing. Nothing. Why? Because God is sovereign, because He is good, because He is working all things out for the good of those who love Him. And, and here, I'll close the illustration. You, you've, I'm sure you have kids, you, you've gone on a long trip. And about five miles out, outside, you'll leave your house, and within about 15 minutes, what are your kids going to ask you? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? And then in about another 25 minutes, you know what they're going to ask you? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? The, rea the reality of what Paul is saying here, believer, is this. If, if we got in the car today and we just headed to Disney World, just an hour away, there's no telling how many kids our, time our kids are going to say, are we there yet? Why? Because the, vo the trip is miserable. They're so anxious to get to where they're going. You and I, believers, we're, in, we're, we're, we're on that voyage between salvation and our final destination and we're not there yet and the interim can be tough the interim trip can be miserable it can be awful and yet god has promised that we will reach our destination romans 8 28 says this there's no delay there's no nothing there's no sin there's no suffering there's nothing that will prevent you believer from reaching your final destination. Nothing. And in the interim, just like your kids, you're going to have to trust your Heavenly Father. You're going to have to trust Him. That The life that you and I enjoy today is incomplete. We are not yet fully what we will be as believers. And yet, and yet, hope abounds for those who are found in Christ Jesus. We have the assurance of arrival. It's almost like, think of it like this, it's almost like if you put the tickets to Disney World in your kids' hands when you left the house. They're guaranteed, look, we're getting there. This is where we're going. Except we're not here yet. There's about an hour in between. And Paul says again in 2 Corinthians 4, this momentary light affliction, listen to me, when those kids show up at Disney World and they see those gates, you know what, that trip, it was about that long. When we show up, when we, when we stand before our God and we enter into the eternity in His presence, you know what, it's going to be momentary. It's going to be light no matter what, no matter what we face. And it will not be worthy of comparing to the glory that is revealed in us. In the meantime, in the meantime, God says this, I'm going to shape you and I'm going to form you 
into the image of my son. You won't always understand it, but you're going to have to trust me. And in the end, in the end, it'll be good. In the end, it'll be good. And if you're here today and you're not a believer, as lovingly as I can say, the end will not be good. I don't want to give you any false. I just read Romans 2. The end of your life as a non-believer is wrath. And deservedly so because of your sin. And yet Jesus, God in His great love and mercy has provided a way for that wrath to be averted. And it's through repentance and it's through belief in Jesus Christ. God put His own Son on a cross and poured out all His wrath on Him towards sin so that He could rightly forgive sinners. He didn't sweep our sin under the rug. He crucified His Son. He punished His Son so that He could rightly forgive sinners. And I beg you, as Paul says at the end of 2 Corinthians 5, as an ambassador of God, be reconciled to God. Repent of your sin. Acknowledge your sin. Repent of your sin. Call upon Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior alone. The Bible says you'll be saved. 